Today we are in Luke chapter 11, from verse 14 down to verse 28. Let me read this for us. This is what God's word says. Beginning in Luke chapter 11, verse 14. Now he, that is Jesus, was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. While others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to him, said to them, rather, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we have heard your word, but we ask that you would help us to hear with ears to hear, and that you would enable us to keep it, to respond in faith. Teach us, Lord, what you want us to know, and make us what you want us to become. For the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. As we continue this morning in chapter 11 of Luke's Gospel, we begin today in verse 14. And we find ourselves situated at something of a starting line of a long crescendo that will reach its peak and cross the finish line at Calvary. And what I mean is that from this point on, in verse 14 we now begin to see open hostility against Jesus, which will only rise in intensity as we move forward. Now, of course, we've already seen various instances of hostility or resistance from the crowds, from people who refuse to believe the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the Son of God, who has come to save sinners. But specifically, here in this passage, the hostility against Jesus begins to take a more organized form. And the rejection becomes more public and explicit as it is spearheaded by the Jewish religious elite, the Pharisees, the scribes, the lawyers, and that whole camp. And so in the ensuing chapters, you'll notice an increasing frequency 
of public confrontations against Jesus by the Jewish leaders as they object to his preaching, engage in theological disputes against him, and even attempt to incite the crowds against him. And so our passage today is the first of many public showdowns to come between Jesus and the hostile Jewish leaders. And what we see here immediately is that in the face of all kinds of objections that they raise in their unbelief, Jesus utterly dismantles their arguments. They they attempt to explain away the truth of who Jesus is, finding every possible excuse to reject him. But in the end, they cannot. Jesus pins them to the ground, as it were, with the anchors of undeniable truth. And church, let me just say from the outset, we do not believe and proclaim Christ for no good reason. This is not a blind faith, as so many like to say. True saving faith is not a blind faith. It is a seeing faith. That which finally sees the truth for what it is, and that which realizes that we were once blind, but now we see the truth of God's grace in the person of Jesus Christ. That He is God the Son, who really came to us as man. And He walked on this planet and died and rose again from the dead 2,000 years ago, just outside of Jerusalem. The same grounds that you and I can walk on today if you go out and travel there. And so look, we we don't gather each Sunday singing His praises, praying in His name, seeking to obey His will, just because it's a nice religious tradition or just a nice community activity. What a sad waste of time that would be if none of this were actually, actually true. No, we come to worship Him and entrust our lives to Him and live to obey Him because we know that Jesus is the truth. The Bible is objective reality. And passages like this serve to reassure us that our faith is not in vain. Trusting in Jesus is not irrational. In fact, what Jesus shows here, first of all, is that unbelief is actually irrational. Rejecting him is illogical because the truth is undeniable. You see, verse 14 begins on this one of many occasions in which Jesus was ministering to the public. And here we find him encountering a man who had been possessed by a demon. Now, I feel the need to make the remark that we today, we live in an era of world history where we are submerged under and drowning in extreme anti-supernaturalist bias. Even in the church. It's a product of this post-enlightenment, rationalistic, naturalistic philosophy that undergirds the very fabric of modern thinking. But look, that, that, that's a relatively new invention of just the past few centuries in the big scheme of millennia of human civilization. Do you realize that most of human history was lived with a full awareness that there are invisible forces and beings at work around us, some for our good and some for our ill. There was a general recognition 
of the reality of an unseen realm. And you don't even have to be a Christian to think this. We're, we're just a prisoner of our own time today. We, we, we think that how we think today is, is how everyone always thought, how, how it always was. And, and so we, we anachronistically, we, we project the present zeitgeist, the, the spirit of this age, into the past, and we assume that, that how the general populace of Western civilization thinks today is how every rational person always thought yesterday. And that's not true. Countless rational and brilliant people acknowledge the reality of invisible entities permeating this world, even as I speak. The spiritual realm. Now, of course, everyone likes to say today, oh, but... We're smarter than that now. They were primitive in their thinking. That's why they believed in angels and demons. But, but we're, we're the age of science. Yeah, the same science that is so advanced our thinking that as a society, we not collectively believe that there are 112 genders. I mean, come on, give me a break. We're not any smarter than past centuries and millennia. Apparently, it's the other way around. Newer technology doesn't mean higher intelligence. That's a very poor assumption that reeks of generational hubris. And all this rationalism and naturalism has numbed our spiritual senses. Our televisions may have progressed from black and white to color, but our worldview has regressed from color to black and white. And so when the Bible talks about demons... And their activity. This is not ancient mythology. This is reality. And we must realize that God's word has a better grasp of reality than we do as 21st century Western people. And so this man whom Jesus encounters was actually inhabited and terrorized by an evil spirit. Which, by the way, happens today. But perhaps the reason why we don't see this phenomenon as frequently is because... Well, the devil no longer needs to undertake such flamboyant activities as much to achieve the same results. I mean, he already has infiltrated the collective mind of our society to make us live as though God didn't exist and as though he himself, the devil, didn't exist. And so why bother making himself known? The devil can now get the same job done totally undercover without needing to be out in the open. And that's called efficiency. But in any case, this particular demonic being had entered into this man and rendered him mute unable to speak. This is the evil force of darkness to effectively imprison this man in his own body. But when Jesus comes into contact with this mute man, the Lord simply commands the demon to leave. And at once, the man was able to speak. Listen, if you were there, and you were watching this happen, you were amongst the crowds, it was crystal clear. This Jesus is not just some man. He's not just some moral teacher. He's not just some religious leader. He's not just another Confucius, another Buddha, another Muhammad. It was unmistakably apparent this Jesus has total authority over anything and everything, over the visible and invisible things, the authority over heaven and earth. 
by logical deduction, Jesus of Nazareth is, can only be, the sovereign almighty God in human flesh. The evidence was right there, which is precisely what all of Jesus' miracles were for, to authenticate him as the Son of God, so that people might believe. But despite the irrefutable evidence before their eyes, here's how some of them responded. Verse 15, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Some among the crowds, the, the latter that's mentioned, they responded with a fleeting fascination at what Jesus was doing, but in the end, they were simply apathetic. They demanded more performances of miraculous signs. And that's why Luke said that they were testing Jesus. Because in so doing, they were putting themselves in the seat of the judge. And they wanted Jesus to impress them with more interesting spectacles to see if he was worth paying more of their attention to. Now look, that is wicked arrogance. The very authority of heaven and earth is standing before you and he has shown you who he is and you still think you are the ultimate authority, that you are the final judge of all things, that you would test Jesus. And there are many who hear the gospel today and they respond in apathy, indifference, neither love, neither hate, just eh, And the temptation is to think that, well, they're not as bad as someone who responds in outright hostility. They don't seem particularly depraved and sinful. But that's not true. All apathy towards God, it comes from deep-seated pride inside the heart. And God looks at the heart. God sees what we cannot see. Whenever someone responds with the thanks but no thanks... God sees the self-absorbed arrogance in the soul that man doesn't see, from which the response of indifference sprouts. It is the pride that refuses to bow down to one who is greater. And the opposite of that is, what? A childlike heart that humbles itself in amazement, in trust, in submission. And only the grace of God can break down the callous apathy of the hardened heart that characterized some among the crowds in this passage. But interestingly, there were others whom Luke doesn't explicitly name, but Matthew does for us in his parallel account, that it was the Pharisees who, well, it seems that they at least recognized that there was a real power and authority here that they could not overlook. I mean, The man was possessed by a real demon, okay? You think he's mute because he just got a potato chip stuck in his throat? He was demonically oppressed and anyone could see that. And, well, this Jesus, it seems that he actually delivered this man from the demon. The Pharisees knew. Those were facts. They couldn't skirt around it. But of course, they didn't want to come to the logical conclusion of what all this means of Jesus, who he is. Because they didn't want to submit to him. They, they, they want to keep their man-made religious machinery going. And so they were thinking, what can we do? Uh, how can we explain away the unexplainable? And in their vehement, stubborn resistance to Jesus, they say, 
He is doing this. That much we can't deny. He is casting out demons. However, he is only able to cast out this demon by the power of Beelzebul. Now this word, this name Beelzebul, it was the name of the deity of the Philistines. The demon that they worshipped. You can see this mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 2. Beelzebub, the god of Ekron. And Ekron was a city of Philistine territory. But over time, this particular demon that they worshipped, uh, this demonic deity came to be understood by the people of Israel as an arch demon. Just like how the Bible reveals to us certain archangels like Michael, or like Gabriel, as we see in the book of Daniel. And hence the term in verse 15 here, they call him Beelzebul, the prince of demons, archdemon, which is actually how Michael, the angels, referred to in, in Daniel chapter 10, that he is one of the chief princes, a princes among the angels. And so Beelzebul is a prince among the demons. The point is, in response to Jesus' amazing display of divine power, What only God has the sovereign authority to do, the Pharisees attempt to explain it away by attributing that exorcism to demonic power. And that is just plain dumb. Because Jesus says in verse 17, Knowing their thoughts, he said, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. If Satan also then is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you're saying that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. In other words, Jesus is saying this. Listen, you dummies, do you even think before you speak? That makes no logical sense whatsoever. A kingdom, an empire, that has divisions within itself, attacking itself will fail to stand. It will cease to exist. It can't exist. That kingdom will crumble like a house of cards. That's just obvious. But you're saying that I'm casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. You knuckleheads. Why on earth would the prince of demons give me the power to cast out the demons over which he is prince? That's silly. That's irrational. And then Jesus delivers a knockout punch in verse 19. Let's just say hypothetically that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. If that's the case, by whom do your sons cast them out? And by your sons, Jesus means your followers, your, your people, your kind. He's referring to Jewish exorcists that were recognized by Jewish leaders. You actually see some of them in Acts chapter 19, verses 13 and 14 where seven sons of a Jewish high priest uh, were undertaking the work of exorcism. It was a big need at the time. And so look, the fact that these are sons of the high priest, evidently the Pharisees, chief priests, and the whole Jewish leadership not only approved of them, but even commissioned them for the task. They viewed these exorcists as legitimate, using the power of God. But all of a sudden, when they see Jesus doing it, and not just, a, just as a mediator of divine power, having to pray and ask God to expel the demon, but when they see Jesus exercising direct authority to cast out the demon, all of a sudden, the Pharisees don't like it because it's not under their institutional control. And so they claim that Jesus is doing it by the power of demons, but he says in response, 
Okay, then, well, if my source of power is what comes from the prince of demons, as you, as you so allege, how about your boys? All your exorcists that you commission and employ, are you willing to group them with Beelzebub too? Have you been ordaining them with the spirit of demons? Have you been approving demonic power? Therefore, they will be your judges. That is to say, your own practice and hypocrisy betrays you and condemns you and exposes your inconsistency. You know that what you are seeing in me is undeniable. And yet you will do anything, even reach beyond the point of rational thinking to explain it all away. And you look like fools trying to do so. You see the lesson here? Unbelief is ultimately self-defeating. Just as the Pharisees demonstrate. It's illogical. It doesn't work. You can't erase the truth of God out of existence. Because we don't exist apart from God. Apart from the truth of who He is. As revealed in His written word. The God who came down to us through His Son 2,000 years ago. That's just objective reality. You know, I remember... When we were living in the Los Angeles area before moving up here, there was one freeway that I would uh, go on quite frequently uh, near Glendale, which is where we lived. It was the two, the two south, the two north. And whenever I would drive south back into Glendale uh, from La Crescenta, which is a little bit north, I'd always see one of those adopt the highway signs at this one location on the freeway. I don't know if you've ever seen those. Uh, basically, it's a sign on the side of the freeway that you could pay to advertise something, put your logo on, or whatever text that you want. And oftentimes, it has uh, the name of some association or something that purchased that space to put their marker on just to make themselves known. But this particular sign on the 2 South freeway that I always saw had the name of this association. Atheists United. And I'd driven by the sign many times, but one day as I drove by it, I had this thought, well, that was kind of strange. You guys are atheists. Which means that you don't believe that God exists. If that's what you believe, why don't you just go on with your life? As if he doesn't exist. Why does this non-existent God bother you so much? Why do you spend so much time and money banding together in this coalition to reassert that which you believe is not real anyway? I mean, look, I, I don't believe Santa Claus exists. I'm sorry if that's news to some of you. I'm glad he doesn't exist. He's kind of weird. He watches you when you're sleeping. Breaks into people's homes through the chimney of all places. He steals cookies and milk. But look, I don't believe he exists. But you don't see me buying billboards that say, Santa Claus is not real. No, it's because I know he's not real that I never bother with him. It makes no difference to me. Even if there were a large group of people who believe in his, in his existence, I'd just leave them be. Who cares? 
I mean, maybe I'll just say, wow, the world really has gone mad. But that's about it. I move on with my life. But why is it that those who refuse to believe the truth of God, why can't they just move on and live consistent with their unbelief? Because their conscience bears witness that the law of God is written on their hearts. Romans 2.15 The truth is inescapable. You see this all the time. Many who purport to deny God's existence. I don't believe in God. But when tragedy and hardship comes upon their lives, with those same lips, they will say, why would God do this to me? And they're angry at the God whom they assert doesn't exist. You can't get around it because the truth of God is an objective reality. You cannot escape it. But this is the sinful heart of rebellion, which is true of all of us apart from Christ, that we would do such a thing as denying God's existence, but we will bring him out out of non-existence just to curse him. And then after we're done, put him back into the box of oblivion. This is how depraved our sinful nature is, you see. We all need the mercy and grace of God to forgive us, to override our unbelief, and to change us, to bring us to bow our knees to the truth. And that's what Jesus implies here in verse 20. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When Jesus says the finger of God, this is a reference to Exodus, the ten plagues. Remember, Pharaoh had some servants. And these servants were so entrenched in demonic religion, in the dark arts, that they were able to replicate a couple of the signs and wonders that God was doing through Moses and Aaron. But at the third plague, when God turned all the dust of the land into gnats that swarmed and terrorized the entire nation of Egypt. What did Pharaoh's magicians say in Exodus 8.19? They said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. We can't replicate this. This is what only God can do. That is to say, even Pharaoh's servants couldn't deny. Even they knew. But of course, Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. And Jesus is saying, if even Pharaoh's servants were here, they would not deny that the kingdom of God has arrived through me. I am the Lord God Almighty. And in the same way, look at the figure of God at work today. People's lives being changed by the gospel. Testimonies of baptisms, conversions, sinners who are once miserable pursuing their own fleshly desires, living a life of self-centered autonomy in emptiness and meaninglessness, but now by the grace of God testifying, God has saved me from myself. I thought I knew what was right and good and true, but now I get it, and now I understand the gospel that Jesus Christ has taken my place on the cross for my sins, to pay the debt that I could never pay. And when I realize myself to be a sinner and turn to Christ by faith for salvation, 
I was born again. Something happened to me. I'm a new creation. I can't even explain it. I now know this peace and joy that I never had. From all the worldly pleasures I, I pursued, I never had that. But now I know the blessing of knowing God as Father. I have peace in life and death. I am not shaken when the world is under panic and there's a fear of war and disease and famine. My highest aim now is not to live for myself, but to live for the will of God, and I am happier than ever. What can make self-serving sinners turn to the living God by faith and submit to Him? Only the supernatural power of God's Spirit as He inclines our hearts to the truth of the gospel. The greatest signs and wonders that God displays to the world are through His people, whom He has raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. His kingdom is His church, the body of Christ. This is an exhortation to us as His church then to live holy lives that testify to the power of the gospel in us, for our lives to be set apart from the rest of the world, whose only hope is in this life and this life only. We are to be different. But Jesus also has an exhortation to non-believers. In verse 21, he says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. The analogy here is this. The devil has kept you under the delusion of unbelief. And in so doing, your heart has become like his own palace, his own territory. He owns you. He has enjoyed the domination that he holds over your heart, relishing in the spoils of his victory, as it were, because you have been enslaved to his influence and power, resisting the truth all your life, believing the lies. But there has arrived, this is the good news, there has arrived a stronger man who has overcome the power of darkness and the devil is totally impotent against him. There is a new sheriff in town and his name is Jesus. And so put your trust in him. Embrace him by faith. And he will come and enter your heart and utterly vanquish the dominion of the evil one which has kept you in the lies of darkness. And perhaps to wake you up and bring you to your senses, Jesus makes this very clear in verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. In other words, this is what Jesus is saying. There is no such thing as neutral ground before God. Don't be deceived. You are either in Christ or outside of Christ. You are either on the side of victory or on the side of defeat. You are either trusting in the stronger man or you are entrusting yourself to the weaker man. 
whose kingdom is being destroyed along with everyone who belongs to it. How easy it is for Satan to deceive people by telling them, oh, but, but you don't hate Jesus, right? You're just a neutral observer. No horse in the race. Oh, don't worry. You're, you're a good person because you're not hateful. That's a lie. You can't just be apathetic as we have seen. Apathy comes from a spirit of rebellion and a resistance to God's authority. Understand very clearly that by default, everyone is opposed to God. That, that, that is the default condition of sinful men because we are sinners, rebels by nature. And when all is said and done, and we all stand before God's judgment seat, it will be shown that everyone who was politely apathetic to Jesus was actually in the secrecy of their hearts, hostile to him, all the same. Non-Christian, your soul is on the line. You must choose this day whom you will serve. And if all this is not enough, there's one more warning to arouse you awake. In verse 24, Jesus says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, this is a peculiar passage, to be sure. Let me put it simply. Jesus is making this point. That it's not enough to just avoid the presence of evil in your life. But you must be filled with the holy presence of God. And he describes this in very dramatic terms, talking about when an evil spirit leaves a person, it searches for rest in waterless places. And this is a difficult interpretive issue at first glance. uh, But whenever we come across things like this, we really need to search other parts of the Bible that use the same phrase because we want the Bible to explain the Bible. I've heard some preachers in commenting on this text say some weird things like you know this is why turns out demons really like water so stay away from lakes oh my goodness mr crazy pants no the term waterless places is used in jeremiah chapter 2 verse 6 and it's, it's just another way to refer to dry land waterless desert or the wilderness and jeremiah 2 6 says in that verse it is where no man dwells It's an unpopulated area. There are no people living there because there is no water. Because we need water to survive. In other words, this is not so much talking about whether or not demons are hydrophobic or hydrophilic, but that evil spirits seek to find habitation in people, in their hearts and minds. They don't live on treetops like monkeys. They seek to find homes and people because that's their M.O. To deceive and destroy image bearers of God. And and, and when they happen to leave a person and they look around, they can't find a new home. They'll seek to return to the previous home, the previous person. And here's the key, okay? Here's the whole key to understanding what Jesus is saying here. When they find upon their return that there is no one new living inside that home. 
but that the heart has simply become a moral vacuum. It's nice and tidy, but there is no new resident and tenant. The result will be an even worse spiritual condition. This is Jesus' graphic way of saying this. Do not think that tidying up yourself, doing some internal self-improvement by cleaning out bad morals will do you any good. Morality cannot save you. You must come to Jesus Christ and ask Him to enter into your heart and reign over it as Lord and Master. He must take the seat of the throne of your heart. That is true saving faith. To return to the jurisdiction of God's loving and perfect authority. Let this be a warning for anyone here who has yet to truly bow the knee to Christ, but you've been living under the false illusion that you are a Christian simply because you've avoided a life of outright lawlessness and crime, and you're better than all the crazy people out there, and you've just been a nice person who's been going to church your whole life. Jesus is saying, that is not enough, because that's not true conversion and salvation. You can be set apart from gross immorality. You can be set apart from blatant wickedness. Be morally tidy. But if you are not inhabited by God's Spirit, if you have no understanding of uh, of knowing Him and loving Him as Father, knowing Him through Christ, trusting in Christ as Savior, then your eternal fate is destined to be worse than even the miserable life of wretched immorality. Friend, you must be filled with truth, with holiness, the presence of God by His Spirit dwelling in you. And that is by truly confessing yourself to be a sinner and turning to Christ to save you from your sinful self. It is to believe that it was your sin that put Him on the cross, but that He went to the cross willingly and lovingly to take on the wrath of God that you deserve. It is to believe that in Christ you can now live the life of obedience and submission to Him, which is your highest joy and blessing. And that's what Jesus reminds us of in verse 27. As He was saying all of these things, there was a woman in the crowd who raised her voice and said to Him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. How happy are those who hear God's word and submit to it, who obey it, who do it. Those who respond in faith, they are more blessed than the one who had the incredible privilege of being his mother, of raising him. And enjoying such intimate maternal relationship with him. In fact, even for Mary, his mother, as J.C. Ryle once said, that for Mary, it was a greater honor for herself to have Christ dwelling in her heart by faith than to have Christ dwelling in her womb and to have nursed him on her bosom. Christian, 
the reason why you are so blessed to hear and receive and obey the words of your Lord is because the truth is in you. Think about the world that denies this truth. They have no hope in death. They have no answers to life. They have no hope in a sovereign God who is good, even when we can't understand why. They have no assurance when things go awry. They have no understanding of purpose and meaning for their existence. And they have no hope when the world shakes because they reject the God who is sovereign and good for the good of his people and for the glory of his name. And thank God that they are one and the same, that God's glory is not at the cost of what is good for us, but he is glorified through all of the goodness and love and mercy he bestows upon his children whom he loves, who are all adopted into his household through Christ. As the world becomes more lawless, as society becomes more volatile, and as global affairs become more tenuous, how happy and thankful we ought to be as the people of God, that our trust is in Him, and that our faith is not in vain, that we worship the Lord Jesus, who is risen and ascended, and to whom all authority on heaven and on earth has been given. Church, be strengthened today in the faith. And let us remember the blessing of the gospel truth that guards us. And by God's help will continue to govern us. Until he returns in the full revelation of the truth of his majesty. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven. We thank you for the work of your spirit to not only inscripturate your word, your revelation, but to impress these things, to write them onto our hearts by faith that we might believe and know and come to Christ by faith. We thank you for your amazing grace that has pursued us first. That although we are dead and depraved in sin, hostile to you, unable to come to you because of the infinite stubbornness of our hearts. You worked an amazing miracle in the hearts of every one of your children here to resurrect that dead heart to one that now beats and lives for you, that sees you and embraces you. Father, would you continue to strengthen and sanctify your church? And we pray for anyone here who does not believe that you would grant them eyes to see and ears to hear and come to the sweetness of the gospel and to taste it by faith. And we do thank you that you continually remind us of the sweetness of your mercy and grace through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. And we ask that you would now, as we prepare our hearts to take it, that you would set apart this ordinary bread and cup and use it to remind us of your mercy and kindness to us, the love that you express to us in the very demeanor of the Lord's Supper and that you feed us and you nourish us in our weakness. And we pray indeed that you would continue to nourish and nurture our faith for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.